have your Bibles and open, turn to John 17. John 17, and we'll read verses 20 to 26. It's the Saviour's great high priestly prayer. A few weeks ago we looked at John 17, 1 to 5, which is the prayer for glorification. Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify him in and through the cross. Last time we looked at John 17, 6 to 19, which is the central section of the prayer, where Jesus prayed for the church, for his disciples' sanctification. They would be kept from the world, from the evil one. We would be sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth. And John 17, 20 to 26, this afternoon, we come to the concluding focus of this extraordinary prayer. So it's first a prayer for glorification, then a prayer for sanctification, and this afternoon we see a prayer for unification. Jesus wants the church to be one. And that note of Christian unity is not difficult to spot in this part of the prayer. You see it right away in verses 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Jesus is praying not only for the disciples who were with him as he prayed these words in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed, but he's also praying for the whole global church that would emerge in the days to come in the wake of their preaching and their teaching. And he asks that the church across the ages and around the world might be thoroughly and fundamentally one. So this is a prayer for unification. And though it seems a little bit awkward to me, sacrilegious in a way, we can break that down a little further and say that in general, verses 20 through 23 show us that our unity is unity in Christ. Christ is the source of our unity. In verse 24, our unity will be a unity in glory. That's the goal of our unity. And in verse 25 and 26, our unity is a unity in love. The manner of our unity. So the source... We are one in Christ. The goal will be one in glory. The manner we learn to love one another and we express our unity in the love of Jesus Christ. That's where we will be going. But before we consider this, let's pray and ask for God's help as we read his holy word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this sacred ground that is John 17, the Son talking to the Father. I thank you for these words. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of Jesus, in whose precious and lovely name I pray. Amen. So John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. The source of our unity. I don't think anyone, it doesn't take rocket scientists to say that ours is a very deeply divided society. Probably more so than I can ever remember myself. We're divided on so many fronts, race, economics, education, religion, politics. They are not subjects that provide the grounds for amicable disagreements between us. 20, 30 years ago, I can remember you could disagree agreeably. Not really any longer. There are open wounds, deep rifts in the fabric of our communities. The tone of our political discourse is demeaning, bitter and cynical. The council culture is, is, is tyrannical and aggressive. The radical individualism that has dominated the last century of the cultural life continues to strain at the fabric of our life together. Me, myself and I. And this has only been heightened in the last two years with the pressures of isolation, the complexity involved in still dealing with COVID-19. We're so worn out by it all, are we not? Frustrated by it. I think I referred to it this morning about anger, but in many cases, fuses have become considerably shorter than they used to be. Impatience. Impatience with opinions different to our own. Wears rather thinner than it used to be. I think even people are driving more aggressively, to be honest. You know, you know the, the amount of, Philip mentioned it to me, and, but it's true, the amount of tailgating that goes on. People driving right up your bumpers, kind of thing. We're so, we seem to be so easily triggered. So unity, in other words, is a precious and increasingly rare commodity. Which is why Jesus' prayer for Christian unity is so important. I referred to this before, but I was touched by about a family who came about five weeks ago, maybe five or six weeks ago, visited. And the, and the wife just said to me on the way out, in here is reality, out there is chaos. And it, this is where we find our reality. We're united because of what Jesus has done. And the loving fellowship of the united church is so precious. It is so precious. Not only is it precious, but it's a mighty instrument in demonstrating to the world that the gospel is true. That's Jesus' point in verse 21. He says it in a slightly different way in verse 23 as well. He prays for Christian unity. Notice that the world may believe that you have sent me. And earlier on, on this night, on the night that he was betrayed, in the upper room where he had celebrated the Passover with his disciples, John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I think sometimes this has been, because this has been misappropriated, we kind of shy away from it sometimes. But this is how men will know that we are his disciples, that we have love for one another. We forgive. We love. We show grace because grace has been shown us. 
So unity is one of the ways that the church demonstrates the power of the gospel to make disparate, suspicious, natural enemies into family. Jesus, Jesus takes the noise and turns it into harmony. He tears down the wall of partition and makes of the two one. He makes believers in him deeply, everlastingly, supernaturally one. And verses 20 to 23 tell us where this unity comes from. He is the source. Our unity is in Christ. It is union with him. And we can unpack that briefly with the model, the motives, and the mechanics, the mechanism of our unity. First of all, the model of our unity. This is astounding to me what Jesus says about the model of our unity. It is the union of the Father and the Son in the fellowship of the Trinity. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Do not miss the scale of the claim that the Lord Jesus is making here. He shares much more than a unity of common purpose with the Father. Their unity together is more than the unity of shared goals. He says, no, the Father is in him and he is in the Father. God is one, single, indivisible, divine essence, one nature. There's only one God, but this God subsists eternally in three distinct, inseparable persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And these three occupy and possess the whole undivided divine nature without any remainder, so that all that is God the Father and all that is God the Son and all that is God is the Holy Spirit. And yet in such a way that the Father is not the Son and the Spirit. Neither is the Son, the Father, or the Spirit, or the Spirit is neither the Father or the Son. But Father, Son, and Spirit are identical to God. So we don't worship three gods, but only one, one alone. So Jesus and the Father are one. Verse 21 puts it, because in his divine nature, as the eternally begotten Son, he is the same God as the Father, yet the Father is not the same person as the Son. So to put it simply, because this is kind of nosebleed territory, isn't it? The space occupied by the Father is the same space occupied by the Son. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. They interpenetrate and dwell in one another in a mysterious and glorious union and communion that stretches all language to its limitations. So the best we can do, and I often say this to people, the best we can do about the Trinity is not to try and analyse it or try and explain it, because I couldn't even scratch the surface, but to adore. It should bring us to our knees in worship. Behold your God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And this unity, the Trinity, the Father and the Son, which nothing could be more pure or complete, more simply or singular, this Trinitarian unity, Jesus says is the paradigm or the model for the unity of believers with one another. And I trust you see at least some of what that means. 
It means that it's not good enough just to rest content with external unity only. A unity that is derived from attending the same congregation or sharing the same commitments. That's the barest expression of Christian unity. Jesus is calling us to a unity from the heart. A whole souled unity that presses toward one another. That aspires to grow closer and closer till it mirrors as closely as redeemed creatures and sinners ever can. The profound unity of the Father with the Son in the Holy Spirit in the Blessed Trinity. So the call of Jesus Christ, my friend, to you, to me today, is not just to get along, but to press toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, to pursue them, to seek them out, to serve them, and to really love them. The model of our unity and the motives of our unity, Jesus gives in the passage two motives for pursuing this unity. First of all, Jesus says our fellowship, our communion with the triune God, with the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit, it rests upon our pursuit of unity amongst ourselves. If you look at verse 21 again, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That means there is a connection between division in the church and a sense of spiritual distance from God. Why do my prayers bounce off the ceiling? Where is God in my darkest days? Why do I feel so little of his presence and power in my life? Well, let me ask you, if you have asked yourselves those questions, when did you last scrutinise the quality of your relationships with other Christians in the fellowship of the local church? Festering resentments, a refusal to forgive, gossip and malicious talk, staying away from the gathered assembly on the Lord's Day. These are the diseases of division that drive our, from our hearts the awareness of the presence of Christ. Well, let me put it positively. Our ability to enjoy the reality of union and communion with Jesus Christ. He speaks throughout this passage of being in us. Our ability to enjoy our union and communion with Christ and our pursuit of unity among ourselves and between us, those things are bound together. You cannot press into God and penetrate ever more deeply into the wonderful mystery of our union with Christ when you drift away from the church of Jesus Christ to which he is joined. I've often thought about that because there are some people who are academically, if you like, students of the Word. They, they, they study it deeply. But unless they're connected to the lifeblood of the church, it won't actually be from the heart and real. And there is another motive for pursuing unity. We mentioned it already at the beginning. That the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23 again, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me them even as you have loved me we need to remember do we not that it's not just god who sees our divisions and it grieves him it breaks my heart every time you hear another if you like rift in the church which is public knowledge it just breaks your heart because the world is watching 
And the church offers a mighty apologetic to our angry, divided society. When people who would otherwise be divided from one another. Look at how you even look at rich and poor. Black and white. Sinners redeemed by the love of God in Jesus Christ. All their many differences notwithstanding are made into family by his extraordinary grace. One of the greatest privileges I have ever had was to be in Vienna at the Christian school where there were 250 kids from 52 different nationalities. It was just such an expression of unity. There was no division. The world is watching, Jesus says. Therefore let us love one another. Do you really love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you, do you look out for them? Do you care for them? The model of our unity, the Trinity, the motives for our unity, and thirdly, what we see about the mechanics of our unity, verses 22 and 23, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. The glory that Jesus is referring to there takes us all the way back to the very beginning of his prayer in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Do you remember when we looked at verse 1, we said that where this glory was going to be displayed, by what means this glory that Jesus is speaking about in verse 1 will shine out into the dark world. We said it shines out from the cross. The glory that Jesus is praying for here it's not the glory of exaltation yet to come, but it is the glory of displaying God most clearly and fully in Christ's crucifixion. If you remember, that's what Christ meant, Jesus meant in John's Gospel by the hour. Because the hour is his appointed moment of his suffering and sacrifice at Calvary. And that is the glory that he prays that the Father would give to him. And that is the same glory that Jesus has given to the church, a cruciform, cross-shaped glory. The glory that is seen most clearly in weakness, in nails in his hands and feet, in suffering servanthood. And that glory, Jesus says, is also to shine from the church. And when it does, to the degree that it does, it results in ever-deepening unity among us, that they may be one, even as we are one. It was a slogan of Martin Luther, the German reformer, to declare, crux probat ominia, that the cross is the test of everything. The cross is the test of everything. Cruciform churches, in other words, churches that embrace weakness, that are not interested in displays of power, Christians who serve rather than demand to be given their place. Ministry that relies on the improbable preaching of the word instead of the manipulative practices of the, church, of the world. These are churches that enjoy the blessing of Christian unity. So the glory that Jesus gives us here is not the glory that is to come. We're going to think about that in the next verses in the passage. But here it is the glory of the cross, the glory of Calvary, the glory of the suffering servant. Our unity depends on it because unity demands humble service. Unity 
takes work. It demands long-suffering, patience. Unity demands sacrifice, which means we don't insist on our own way and our own will, but humbly we serve our brothers and sisters. So unity, I would argue, is always cross-shaped. Crux, probat, aminia, the cross is the test of everything. In our Christian lives, in our churches, is our unity formal, academic and superficial? Or is it the real thing in here? If it is, it will be cruciform. A glory that shines from us only as we serve one another. In the pattern and the likeness of Jesus Christ, to whom we're joined. So the source of our unity is union with Christ. In the second place, though, we learn about the goal of our unity. That was the source of our unity. And our unity in Christ leads us to our coming unity, perfect unity in heavenly glory still to come. Remember, I, I preached on heaven recently because I just think it's so important to be ever reminded, ever reminded of the Christian's God, the home. This world is not our home. Don't get too comfortable here because our home is in glory. And what makes heaven heaven? Jesus. That's Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. And our unity in Christ leads us to our coming unity. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may see my glory that you have given to me because you love me from before the foundation of the world. It's an extraordinary statement. The Father is going to glorify Jesus in heaven after his resurrection and exaltation and ascension. And he will do it because he has loved the Son from eternity, from before the foundation of the world. And it is in the context of the Father's eternal love of the Son. It is one of the great tokens of the Father's love for his Son that he gives the gift, the love gift to his Son of a people for himself. The people whom you've given me is an expression we see repeated over and over throughout this great high priestly prayer. And here it is one more time. And as he thinks about the people whom you have given me, he prays for them, for us, that we may in due course be with him where he is and see his glory. The older theologians called it the beatific vision what makes, as I said, heaven, heaven. The great question as we try and think about what will heaven be like, I've had quite a few conversations over the years. People have often asked me, especially my boys, well, will there be dogs in heaven? Um, some people have actually asked me, will there be burgers in heaven? I'm not quite sure about that. Or Handel or Mozart or Bach in heaven? And frankly, these are immodest, probably even trivial, they're definitely trivial questions. It's like driving through a staggering landscape on holiday, and you're staggered by the scenery as you drink it in, the soaring mountains, the crashing waterfalls. Um, I love going to Scotland, to be honest with you, and seeing some of the incredible scenery. I love it here as well. But you don't quite get that, you know, the bleakness of the crashing waterfalls, the plunging ravines, the shades of light and dark. 
Mind you, I do love the different colours of Skidder, whichever way that the light is shining on it. As the clouds are in the sky, and it takes your breath away. And it takes your breath away. And you turn around to look at passengers, and it won't take a miracle to work out who those are, and you exclaim in wonder, and they're busy doom scrolling on their phones. And <laughs> they're missing majesty! And they're reading bad news. They're missing majesty. Why are we so eager to imagine heaven as much like here as we can possibly make it? I have never once understood that. Why do we try to imagine heaven to be a good part of, a good part of here? Yes, there will be a new creation. It won't be some vague ethereal existence, to be sure. There will be, no doubt, be much that we recognise. Possibly beaches, maybe even barbecues, I don't know. Definitely best friends, no doubt. But our joy won't be in those things for our, their own sake. They won't. Not ultimately, no. Because it's the glory of Christ. Christ's glory will glow, will blaze, is probably a better word, with undimmable brilliance. Eradicating every, irradiating every inch of the new creation. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus, the triumph of the Lamb. And Jesus asks the Father that you might be with him, where he is in his glory. So what a destiny belongs to you, child of God, together with Jesus in his place, face to face with the one who died for you, seeing with new eyes the light of God shining in his exalted face. So the point is, what I'm trying to get to is our unity here, our unity here, right here, right now, is designed to help us get there. Where unity, our unity at last, will be completed and Jesus' prayer will be fully answered. I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. So our unity here today has in mind, has in view, the glory that is to come. And thirdly, so we've had the source of our unity, our unity is in Christ. And the goal of our unity, glory. The glory of Christ and the manner, finally, of our unity, our unity is expressed in love. Verse 24 and 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is what Jesus prayed. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 the Apostle Paul says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. We know exactly what he means, do we not? No one thinks being called a know-it-all is a compliment, or I hope they don't. And there's a reason why the noun is usually preceded by the adjective insufferable, for example. Because we don't like know-it-alls, because they're arrogant. They like nothing so much as to show off what they know or what they think they know. So there is a knowing that is the opposite of love. But in our text, Jesus links a different kind of knowing that produces love. Jesus says he knows the Father, even though the world does not know him. And because Jesus has shown the Father to his disciples, to us, 
we know the Father too in Jesus. And the result is that the love that the Father lavishes on Jesus now rests on us as well. So this is a different kind of knowledge that Jesus is talking about. It's not head knowledge only. It's the knowledge of union and communion. It is the knowledge of a family. It is the knowledge the husband and wife have of one another. It's a knowledge not just of information but of intimacy. It brings love to bear on us. And do not miss the promise, the glorious promise, I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that your love may be in them and I in them. Jesus has and he will never stop making the Father known to us. Is that not good news? He's not done with us yet. Praise the Lord he is not done with us yet. He will show us more and more and teach us more and more. As Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, once said, it is no matter what the capacity or incapacity of the scholar be when there is such a teacher. Do not worry that you feel the limits of your understanding. Jesus will give you the capacity as well as the content. And his goal in continually bringing you into the knowledge of God is that you might feel and taste and rejoice in and rest upon the wonder of his love. Which is another way of saying that you might feel and know and taste and rest upon the wonder of your union with Christ that your love may be in them and I in them. Being part of a family, the one thing sometimes that constrains us to love our annoying siblings, I don't know whether any of you ever got annoyed with a sibling, is not ultimately fear of our parents' anger, it is their love. They loved me and they loved them. They loved my brothers, they loved my sisters. So love called me to love them too. And living in my parents' love created an atmosphere of love, an environment of love, a world of love that made unloving actions towards others seem out of place, inappropriate, alien. Now that sounds quite um, utopian. It isn't really, I mean, but you understand my point. We didn't have a perfect family or anything like that, but it is that love. We are constrained by love. And that is what Jesus is doing when he showers the love of the Father on us never ceasing to make him known to us. He's creating a world of love, an environment of love. The air that we breathe, the atmosphere, is love. So unforgiveness, lovelessness between Christians, will seem to us to be alien, foreign and wrong. Because the love of Christ for us, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Jesus loves us, we produces love for us, for others in return. Like a struck bell, the notes of his love reverberate in every believing heart and echoes in love in one another. I wonder whether, have you been breathing in the foul, toxic stench of insecurity and pride and self-righteousness and anger so that all you breathe out to others is judgment, put-downs and cynicism. What you take in will come out. I often say 
to people is that, you know, because people write the most horrible things online and they think that it's anonymous. But what, you, what comes in will come out. If you, you know, if you feed that hatred, you'll say it one day. But we can come this afternoon to the Lord Jesus Christ and repent. And instead, fill our lungs with the pure, clean air of his love. What a wonderful difference that would make. He loves you. And you'll find it harder not to love those that Jesus loves too. Maybe your knowledge has been head knowledge for far too long. You've been come puffed up. Jesus is asking, pleading, calling to burst the bubble of pride and come and taste the true knowledge of God that only can be found in him. You cannot find it in a book. You have to get it from him. Not just facts and figures, not doctrines and principles only, but God himself is available in our Lord Jesus Christ. So come this afternoon, drink in the love of Jesus and I am convinced you will begin at last to truly love one another. May God bless the word for his glory and for our good, our unity. Amen.